we don't, we believe, continue to have a new revelation being given because God is not in these 2,000 years continuing to do new corporate acts of redemption to accomplish our salvation. Yes, he does continue to apply salvation to us, calling new people, men, women, children, uh, to himself. That's the application of redemption, but it's applying what Christ has already once for all accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. Thank you for tuning in to episode 129 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. This is a broadcast where the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchibor, Director of Marketing here at Mid-America. And in today's episode, we're going to continue our series on cessationism versus continuationism. That is, the ceasing or continuing of the spiritual gifts. We have here with us Dr. Cornelis Venema and Dr. Marcus Minninger, and in their previous conversation, they laid out the context for this very debate, and you could probably guess that they've landed on a position. Yes, today we will hear the case for cessationism and the ceasing of revelatory gifts. Here's Dr. Menninger to get us started. Well, we're here uh, for a second episode to talk about the question of a continuation of uh, revelatory and other uh, miraculous gifts or their cessation in the church after the apostles uh, had died and were no longer present in the church. So in other words, some of these gifts that the New Testament mentions as being present in the church during the apostolic period, uh, did some of them cease to be operative in the church after the apostles were no longer with us? And Uh, We're going to take the position that, yes, some of them did cease to be operative and are no longer operative in the church today, which, of course, is not what everybody thinks. Uh, Some of the the background to this, um, I think it's valuable to step back and take a wide-angle lens on Scripture to realize that as we uh, view Scripture as a whole, uh, we need to be very clear on the fact that revelation from God, to focus on that in particular, revelation from God has never been constant and continuous, always operative, that it has definitely started and stopped throughout the course of uh, redemptive history. And we see this testified uh, frequently in scripture. We can think about, for example, the many generations of people who existed between, say, uh, Cain and Abel on the one hand and Noah on the other. Uh, that uh, scripture uh, records no revelation from God, new words from God being spoken during that time period, or again, between Noah and Abraham, or between Joseph and Moses, etc. And then again, as we walk forward between the end of the Old Testament, uh, the uh, operation of the prophets in that time period, and uh, the silence that existed prior to, say, God's appearing through an angel to Zechariah in the temple in Luke 1. And so we do need to recognize that the starting and stopping of revelation from God is something frequently seen throughout the pages of Scripture as it looks across redemptive history. And then we can go from there to seek to observe, what do we notice about why does revelation start and stop? If it's not always continuous, uh, what is the sort of the logic or the reason for why it begins and, and ceases at times? And a crucial part of that, which we see again as we look back in uh, Scripture, 
is that uh, God's giving new revelation clusters around times when he is performing new redemptive deeds, when he's accomplishing something new in a corporate and once for all way in history, redemptively speaking. So again, we can think about, uh, say, why does God begin to speak again to Noah? Well, it's because he's going to accomplish something new of an objective corporate historically significant kind for redemption uh, to, to, of course, judge humanity in the floodwaters, but also to save Noah and his family? Or why does he begin again to speak to Abraham? It's because he's going to separate Abraham out from his family in Ur of the Chaldees and bring him to a new land, which will show him, and begin a new distinct people group, a new family that will become a nation. Again, just keeping going forward, why does God begin to speak to Moses in the burning bush in the wilderness? It's because he's about to uh, move again and act again in history to bring about the greatest paradigmatic event of uh, redemption in the Old Testament, namely the Exodus. And and so God begins to speak to tell Moses uh, what I promised long ago to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I'm now going to begin to do and to bring about. And so God speaks. Uh, and and you can continue to trace that pattern, right? Because uh, Jesus Christ is going to come in the flesh and the central redemptive events of all of history are about to take place. And because pri- immediately prior to him, John the Baptist is going to be sent as the final Old Testament prophet. That's why God speaks to Zechariah in the temple, right? To tell him, uh, I'm about to do this. So what we see then is that revelatory words from God to his people accompany and come along with new redemptive deeds of, uh, let's say, corporate accomplishment, right? God's doing something new in history in a once-for-all way. When we recognize that large pattern, then we can understand that we can ask the question, well, what about in the New Testament period? And of course, in the New Testament period, we see the central redemptive events of all of history, the first installment, at least, of those central redemptive events, meaning the first coming of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection, uh, his ascension, etc., the pouring out of the Spirit, all of these uh, crucial, uh, corporately significant, public historical events uh, and that's uh, why these then revelatory words are present. We can see uh, then also that the revelatory words that follow Christ's own earthly ministry are commissioned precisely or are given and, and provided precisely in order to provide testimony, corporate public testimony to what Christ has done redemptively. So in Luke 24, 44 through 48, uh, Christ says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, uh, that the Christ must suffer and die and be raised on the third day, etc. that uh, repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And then he says to the apostles there, Luke 24, 48, you are witnesses of these things. And so the apostolic role, the speaking role um, for uh, that followed in, in uh, Christ's own life is to provide an eye and ear attestation to these great corporate redemptive deeds. That's the purpose, the function of God's revelatory word. Now, because then there's a a significant time period, as God has ordained things, between Christ's first coming, in which he climactically accomplishes our redemption, and his second coming, when he will return and bring all of those redemptive uh, purposes to their their fullest measure and and uh, and realization. 
uh, because there's a significant time period between there, um, we don't, we believe, continue to have uh, new revelation being given because God is not in these 2,000 years and, and counting, however many more come, continuing to do new corporate acts of redemption to accomplish our salvation. Yes, he does continue to apply salvation to us, calling new people, men, women, children, uh, to himself. That's the application of redemption, but it's applying what God, Christ has already once for all accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection. So we continue then to apply what he's already revealed, but we don't believe that he's continues to reveal himself in new ways, just as he doesn't continue to accomplish redemption uh, in new ways now uh, until Christ returns. Uh, so there's that distinction between revelation, redemption being accomplished uh, previously in, in uh, Christ's own uh, ministry uh, on earth, redemption is being applied now, that distinction, revelation being accomplished previously, revelation now not being given further in a new way, but only being applied now. Now, to get into that a little bit, that's a general background, a part of the logic. Uh, I think we probably are not likely to understand the cessationist uh argument very well if we don't understand some of that broad biblical theological background. But then we can, of course, get into some more details. Um, why further then might we think that uh, some of the gifts operative in the apostolic period uh, are no longer operative? And we said in a general way that the revelatory uh, activity is meant to accompany and, and give official eye-ear testimony to the redemptive events. But we can say more than that, that it's clear to most people, and I think it can be argued quite clear, strongly and, and um, pretty succinctly, that not all the gifts given to the church are continuous until the present day. Most people would be fairly ready to admit that at least the apostleship uh, that Peter, James, and John, and others, of course, had the 12 in particular, as well as Paul, the the apostleship is no longer present with us today. But Paul makes very clear that the being an apostle is one of the gifts uh, in 1 Corinthians 12. And so at least it would seem that that gift, uh, most people would ad- admit, has ceased in the church. And if they wouldn't admit it, you could go to Acts chapter 1 and say, look, what was it that defined apostles? The uh, testimony in Acts 1, uh, when the uh, 11 were seeking to replace Judas uh, after Judas had uh, killed himself, uh, was was quite clear. The, the uh, requirements for qualifications for being an apostle included being an eye and ear witness of Jesus Christ's whole earthly ministry since the time of his baptism through his resurrection. And that's a qualification that could no longer possibly, people could no longer possibly meet after just a generation of time in the church. Um, so we can't have apostles today because we don't have pioneer witnesses of Christ's earthly ministry, uh, just to put it succinctly. And therefore, at least that gift is no longer present. From there then, if at least that gift is no longer present, we need to think about are there other gifts that are no longer present and operative within the church? Even though many, many gifts, the vast majority of the gifts of the Spirit are present and operative in the church, are there still some others that aren't? And the evidence in the New Testament is that the revelatory gifts in particular are something that ceased. And we can outline in a brief-ish way what some of that evidence is by noticing, for example, that the revelatory gifts 
were given, as Ephesians 2.20 makes very clear, for the specific purpose of laying a foundation for the church upon which others then subsequently would build. And so Paul says that the apostles and prophets function in the church, Ephesians 2.20, to lay a foundation upon which the rest of the building of the house would be built. Uh, in other words, that notion of a foundation is clearly something that involve, that you do once and for all when you build a house, right? You don't build, lay a foundation uh, continuously alongside of putting up the walls and the roof and so forth, not yet having a foundation. And that was even especially the case in the ancient world where foundations actually only worked because they held together very closely and tightly with multiple different stones in the foundation. They didn't lay, you know, solid concrete and steel tie foundations in the ancient world. The, the foundation only worked because all the pieces were there uh, and they were held together with sort of pressure and the and the uh, importance of that those uh, cornerstones that uh, were larger and, and less movable and so forth. And so it's even more clear in ancient construction thought, as it were, that, that foundations were laid once for all, not continuously. And Paul very clearly says then that the apostles and the prophets, which we should take to be New Testament prophets, if you look at the phrase in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 3, uh, the, the prophets being spoken there of there are New Testament prophets, I guess just a comment on that, Ephesians 3, 1 and following uh, makes clear that the apostles and the prophets are those to whom something new has been revealed that was not made known among the sons of men in previous generations, to whom this new mystery of the Gentile mission was revealed. So that's the context there. You can read the early verses of Ephesians 3 to make sure of that. The apostles and the New Testament prophets were given in order to lay the foundation of the church, in order to teach the church what it is that Christ would have them know, others thereafter would simply build upon that foundation by spreading that word. Now, why do we say that? Why are others thereafter only building upon the foundation by spreading the same word that the apostles and prophets would give? Well, there we could look, for example, to some of the later epistles of the New Testament, particularly the later ones in Paul's own life, where he writes at length to, say, Titus and Timothy in the pastoral epistles. And what you can notice there that, you know, many have observed that if there was anyone in all of Scripture that was going to be, say, Paul's successor, it would have been Timothy, somebody that Paul uh, mentored and took great care in developing and grooming and, and instructing. But what does Paul say to Timothy as he writes to him? Does he tell him to continue adding revelation to what had already been given? Does he tell him uh, to continue prophesying? Does he tell him uh, that, uh, Timothy, you need to take the baton and run with it uh, and give people what the next generation needs to know that the first generation didn't understand or provide? No, Paul doesn't speak anything of that sort. He says instead things like this to Timothy. Timothy, follow the pattern of sound words that you've been given, 2 Timothy 1.13, meaning that there's a pattern already provided, stick with that pattern, or even more strongly, to guard the good deposit entrusted in 1 Timothy 6.20 or 2 Timothy 1.14. Here you've already been given something, Timothy, uh, your job isn't to add to it, your job is to preserve it, keep it, use it, and pass it on 
intact to others. You can see that kind of language in 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul says to Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, right? So there's that public revelatory activity of the apostle Paul. That, Timothy, what you've heard the apostle say in the presence of many witnesses publicly is what you should pass on and entrust to reliable men who will be able to teach others. So there's a clear shift in the church's life, evidenced in these texts and others, uh, towards a preservationist mode, right? We've been, the foundation has been laid once for all. This revelatory content has been given. Now you guard, preserve, keep, use, and build upon that, meaning tell others that so that they too can believe that same content, um, not uh, continue to add. So the language of say Jude one thirteen is uh, sorry Jude one three is very useful to us. Jude uh, tells the church there that we ought to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and that's really what we believe the mode of the church's um, biblical instruction uh, should be subsequent to the apostolic period. Not seeking new words from God, but guarding and using, even contending for uh, this uh, faith content, this teaching content that's been delivered to us once for all, right along with the salvation that's been uh, accomplished once for all. Well, let me just add a couple of things to what uh, Marcus has so well articulated. And I want to first begin with a a comment that picks up on some things he said about the nature of revelation in the course of redemptive history. This teaching that there is a post-conversion baptism, a kind of Pentecost experience that some believers enjoy and others do not. What Marcus was reminding us of is that Pentecost is not an event that is repeated. It's a singular event at a decisive moment upon our Lord's ascension, the Spirit is poured upon, out upon the whole church corporately and upon all who are members of that church. No one is exempted. It's very interesting that Paul in 1 Corinthians 12, when he speaks of the Spirit and of baptism, says in verse 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. What Paul is saying there about the church in Corinth and all of its members could be said about the church wherever it's found and all of its members, but it can be said of us that we are, by virtue of our union with Christ, through the working of the Spirit with the Word, we've been baptized into Christ. We've been baptized with the Spirit whom Christ has given. And that giving of the Spirit occurred once and for all and is a definitive event, an irrevocable event, an event that shapes the profile of all Christian churches and all believers who are truly members of the church by virtue of an event that occurred once for all. So just a little point about language, some translations speak in or, or translate that verse with the uh, preposition by the Spirit. Actually, the language there is in or with the Spirit. And it recalls four instances in all of the Gospels, in each of the Gospels, and two instances in the book of Acts, 
where the act of Christ ascended in fulfillment of the Father's promise of baptism is an act that occurred at Pentecost and has continual implication, defines the whole church ever since. Um, So it's not a post-conversion experience, individual, on the part of a few. It's the truth regarding all members of Christ church living after Pentecost. One of the arguments that's often made is that, well, notice these were believers, the nucleus of the early church, 120 who were gathered in Jerusalem waiting, and they were disciples. They were believers, but not yet spirit-baptized. And then they'll go into other passages in the book of Acts where there's language used regarding the the descent of the Spirit upon them. Think of Cornelius' household, for example, in chapters 10 and 11 and elsewhere. And they'll say, look, this is once again a kind of description of the ordinary experience of some Christians who have not yet been Spirit-baptized. But this abstracts the record, the narrative of the book of Acts as a whole, which is a companion to Luke's gospel, of an epoch in redemptive history that is singular and that is, as Marcus reminds us using Paul's language in Ephesians 2, a period where the word concerning the Christ who had come in the fullness of time, concerning his person and work as the crucified, risen, resurrected, ascended Lord and Savior, was given to the church through the testimony of the apostles and the prophets of the New Testament epoch. This is all foundational and basic and definitive, descriptive of what now becomes true for all who belong to the church. They have a share in that one reality of Christ present, even as he had promised. He would not leave his disciples as orphans, but would pour out his spirit upon them. Another parakletos, paraclete, comforter, would be given to them to abide with them forever. And one of the very unfortunate features of at least that dimension of Pentecostalism that singles out some believers in uh, separating them from others, that they're participant in and enjoy this end-time reality of Christ's spirit being given by whom Christ is present among his people, is it suggests that a goodly portion of the Christian church is not enjoying the riches, the fullness, the presence of Christ by his Spirit in the way in which only some are. And I never fail to tell my students when I talk about this topic in class, now you, you're liable to be misunderstood if, some, if you say you're a Reformed or Presbyterian or a church evangelical is Pentecostal. But by definition, there is no other church of the Lord Jesus Christ since Pentecost than churches that enter into the riches of what is given to them in Christ by the ministry of the Word concerning Christ in the power of the Spirit he poured out, gifted the whole church with. If the revelatory gifts have ceased, how do we respond to fellow believers who claim to have them or have experienced speaking in tongues and have performed miraculous signs? If cessationism is true, how do we, as those who hold to uh, classic Reformed convictions, not come across as if we're somehow diminishing the work of the Spirit today? The answers to these questions and more 
will be tackled next time. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchibor. Till next time.